Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Axiom Tomatoes podcast. I'm Brandon Wood. And I'm Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles. For all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the confines and the walls and fences of institutional religion. So thank you for joining us for episode number 43 of the podcast. It is the 18th episode of our second season, and our guest today is Dr. Jim Nolan. He is the chair of sociology and anthropology at WVU. He's also an author. I also know him from growing up playing soccer with his son. This guy's amazing. Um, uh, Jim and I, uh, back in the day, I had him on my previous podcast and interviewed him about plethora of topics, and he is just a wealth of information. Today, we're going to talk about police reform. Um, He has a book. He has two books, but a new book that came out this past year about police reform. And um, Joe, I'm speaking for myself. My mind was blown (laughs) during this conversation. It was, was, yeah, it was was an amazing conversation. Uh, In fact, it was so good that um, we actually have asked Jim to come back for a second episode um, on on some other topics besides police reform. Um, But we're really excited, uh, really grateful to Jim, for sitting down with us and having this conversation. I think it's a really important conversation uh, for folks in our communities to be having um, as we as we kind of try to reimagine what um, yeah. what policing does and how it can be, you know, really effective in in building up our communities. So please just uh, join Brandon and I in giving a warm accidental tomatoes welcome to Dr. Jim Nolan. They're saying, I accept police policy as is. And I and I suspect that the bad apples are the ones that are causing the problem. But what I show, try to show with data, is it's not the bad apples, it's the good apples. Following policy is actually creating the problem. In fact, most of the problems in policing are because of people are following policy, not violating it. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Axe on Tomatoes podcast. Man, we are so excited. We have an amazing guest today, uh, so everyone, please welcome Dr. Jim Nolan. Yay! <laughs> Golf claps. How are you doing, Jim? Great, great to be here. Very happy to be here with you guys. Awesome, Jim. If you want to go ahead, just introduce yourself, and you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm um, a professor at WVU. I'm chair of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. And I've been there about uh, 21 years. And before that, I worked for the FBI for a short time. But um, my career, my, my first career was a, as a police officer. And this is uh, where I spend a lot of my, uh, my research hours, focus on policing uh, wow. in the age of reform. I, in fact, I have, a, I have to plug myself a little bit. This, I have a new book out, Policing in the Age of Reform. Uh, Palgrave publishes. Maybe I'll talk more about the book uh, a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. Great. We would love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you said new book because you had one out previously, correct? Right. I have a, I have a, a book, a co-authored book on hate crime called The Violence of Hate. Okay, it's that's what a, I remember. It's in the fourth edition. Oh, wow. And then how new is how new is the new book? It's out this year. Wow. Uh, yeah. January, January 2021. Pandemic publishing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so for the listener, I met Jim. Um, so I played soccer with with your son, um, and I remember. I think I was in middle school when you guys moved to the area because I remember Jimmy 
um, I think it was middle school when I first met him. And then, you know, we went to school together in high school, we played soccer and our, our social, you know, friends were together. Um, but, uh, it was, it just always interesting to me. Like you don't realize how cool the parents are (laughs) until you get, you know, you get older and you're like, Oh dude, that guy is awesome. Um, so I didn't realize, so you were in, you were your previous, before you guys moved here, you were a police officer. Right. And that's <clears throat> okay. And then, um, so if you dive into obviously with everything going on in the, the day and age with, um, um, what was the hashtag, uh, defund the police? Is that what the hashtag was? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then obviously the, all the crimes that were going on and, and, um, so go ahead and just dive in. So, so with police reform, um, what are some of the things that you advocate for in regards to reform? Well, when I was a police officer, it was it was clear to me that the, what the problem was that the people were that there were criminals, and that there were people breaking the law, and the the police, in order to make places safe, had to enforce the law. So, in my mind, and uh, the, the policing and law enforcement were the same thing. Uh, in my my new frame of mind, the police policing is a profession, and law enforcement is a strategy within the profession. And sometimes I make the connection between a uh, like a carpenter uh, hammer hammers nails, but a carpenter would never uh, be evaluated on the number of nails he or she hammers. It was always about the product. Uh, but the police, the law enforcement. Um, version of hammering nails, there's no requirement to build anything, that the police just have to enforce the law. It doesn't matter if places are safer. It doesn't matter if people, there's more trust. None of that matters. And so there's a logic that forms in policing that these things just don't matter. And um, therefore we've had, I think this is the root of the problem. A lot of people will say it's like implicit bias and those types of things. I think it's really the law enforcement approach to policing is the, uh, the source of the problem. So why, why is that? Why do you think, um, why do you think policing became what it is that, that it's that law enforcement approach? Um, how, how did we get there? I guess. Well, I think, I think it's, you know, policing has a sort of a diverse history, but in the, in the South, I think by now, most people know that policing began as slave, uh, patrols. So the police were used as a way of maintaining a, a way of life, even in, even when there's, uh, you know, uh, an institution like slavery or uh, an institution like Jim Crow segregation, that the police were used to um, in, in that in that way. But then in the 70s, when the, the war on drugs began and Nixon passed the, uh, you know, the, the start of the war on drugs, uh, the intent was to get federal troops into uh, local communities to control black people, black and brown people. And uh, the police, the war on drugs kicked up in the 80s and the 90s when I was a police officer. There was so many, so much federal money flowing into local police departments for overtime. And officers who wanted to work the overtime, they had to make lockups. I mean, everything was about how many lockups did you make? How many, how much drugs did you get? How many, and, and this sort of thing. And I, I go back to my old police agency and I visit other police departments and it's, it's really the same thing. I mean, you get the, uh, the police officers coming into, a, um, into the profession, they wear these ribbons on their uniforms 
And you get the ribbons by making apprehensions. So every car stop, every pedestrian stop is, is, a, is a potential ribbon. You know, it's a, it's a source of capital. People, people walking the streets in some neighborhoods, particularly that are defined as bad neighborhoods, these are places where there's lots of possibilities to cash in from a police perspective. Can I make a lockup? Can I get guns off the street? And so I'm not actually trying to help people or make places safer. I'm actually trying to make lockups. Wow, that is, that's such a weird that's incentivization. Fast, yeah, yeah and, it, and it it just, you know, I pointed out since then uh, this past year, I've been on a number of talk shows and I've talked about this and I've talked about policing and, and the um, to legislative bodies and stuff like that. And, and nobody seems, they, they, it sort of, hits their ear or something and bounces off. It doesn't, it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't resonate with, with people. What I'm saying is like, if you change the things you measure and change the reward structure in the organization so that people can build relationships and they can make places safer, you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a better place and a better career and the police officers are gonna be safer. But it doesn't happen. Yeah. It, it seems like as a society, we're so invested in, I don't know, man, there's so much to unpack with all of that. There's, there's like, there's fear and control narratives that seem to, to kind of underlay all of that. Like if, if we change the way we police, we feel like we're giving up control of yeah. the safety of our neighborhoods, which we're not really getting anyhow. Right. Right. Well, you know, I mean, if you, if you look at like, uh, I looked at recently. I looked at Cleveland's uh, crime data, and they, you know, they have a you know a ton of murders, and and they have a very progressive police department and police headquarters. There's like a, a museum, and there's a, you know, a story about the policing in Cleveland. They have like a they have like a fifteen percent clearance rate on murder. That means like eighty five percent of murders go unsolved. Oh my wow. gosh! And burglaries about eight percent. That means like ninety two percent of burglaries don't get solved. And so I think that that's really the story of policing in, in the United States is that it, it's the illusion that the police are there to protect you. But what really happens is that these uh, this uh, ideology of, you know, this aggressive law enforcement actually makes places less safe. It destroys trust and breaks relationships. And, and where my, my uh, approach would be, and I have um, new metrics and that sort of thing that we could talk about if you want, but the idea is that there are ways of measuring safer, stronger communities. And if that, and, and there are techniques that the police could use to do that. So before we go into those metrics, cause I'm interested to, to hear about those. I, I mentioned the defund the police hashtag that was going around and I, and I forget after what incident happened where that started. So you're not advocating for, and I think I personally think defund the police was the wrong slogan. And I think the, um, one camp jumped on that, you know, and they're like, well, hey, they want to do away with police policing altogether. And that defund to me was the wrong word. Um, so you're not advocating to obviously get away, get rid of the police system. You're saying, no, the police system needs to be, but we need to, we need to overhaul it. Correct. Right. Yeah. right. I, I in, the, in my book, I talk about four types of police reform. And uh, so if you do a, a two by two table, so the one, one is you can, if you change what, um, 
change the law enforcement approach to something else? So that's yes or no. Do you change the law enforcement approach? Yes or no. And it, uh, or do you change strategies? Yes or no. That comes with a four by four table. So there's there's one uh, one that's there's no change to the mission and no change to the strategies, and I call that maintaining. Mm. To me, that's the defund. They're they're not defund is trying to take money away from the police because they say that they're asked to do too many things, and really what they should focus on is just enforcing the law. And uh, but that's not really police reform at all. And and there's a there's a that's a lot of that that category right there. Maintaining a lot of police reform efforts are there. It's like accredit accreditation bureaus and um, citizen review boards and those types of things. They're saying I accept police policy as is, and I and I suspect that the bad apples are the ones that are causing the problem. But what I show try to show with data is it's not the bad apples. It's the good apples following policy that's actually creating the problem. It's most, in fact, most of the problems in policing are because of people are following policy, not violating it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the situation with the George Floyd event where you had one bad cop and all these other cops who didn't say anything. You know what I mean? Like that, because if you speak to the person out of your rank, you could be, you know, in trouble for overriding that so they were just following i don't i don't want to say they were following policy but they were following that order when really there wasn't you know they could have spoke out against what was happening in that moment right and they they also if you look at it you know when i saw when i saw that uh incident happening just like everyone else did uh, it looked to me like normal police practice it didn't look like a bad act in other words you know george floyd died and it was it was a tragedy and and he was rightfully uh, uh, Chauvin was rightfully convicted. However, if Chauvin lived and someone made a complaint against what the police were doing, they would no, it wouldn't have even been a violation. They would have said he there was some resistance. He was thrown to the ground, and even uh, though that it wasn't, saying, yeah. we we know now that it was abuse of force. It wouldn't have been. So it was really it was really the outcome that created that made it a bad act. But but throughout the United States, that same thing is happening all over. Um, I've been reviewing files for, you know, just a video cam um, settings on some police um, cameras. And the, the mentality of the police is that if you try to get away with me with a vehicle and you even come close, I'm going to think of it as a weapon and I'm going to shoot you. I mean, that happened in recent, even in where we live in uh, a few years back in um, the Middletown Mall, the oh, yeah. uh, uh, West, not Westover, uh, Whitehall police officer was trying to stop somebody on a warrant. They were trying to get away from him. And they go, no, it's coming at me. It's a weapon. And they kill the, kill the driver. And all around the country, now please shoot and kill a thousand people in the United States a year. Shoot oh, wow. and kill a thousand people. Hmm. When, I mean, it, it seems like you know, there, there used to be a policy of, uh, you know, lethal force was the last option, right? That was, you had exhausted every other option before that came around. It seems like something has flipped in, in recent years where that has now become the first go-to solution to a problem is the use of deadly force. Is that accurate or... Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that it's, 
you didn't hear about this as much. I mean, if when I was a police officer, if you go into a, a situation and you have to fight, you fight. But now these a fight is con, converted to what goes for my gun. Or, you know, if I get knocked out, then they're going to take my gun. So therefore, I might, I'm at risk of being killed. And then if I'm killed, then other people might be killed. So like these, this uh, um, calculus is going on in the minds of the police. Again, but remember something, Joe. My my, what I'm saying is, it's not a psychological issue. These are sociological problems. Most mm. psychological problems have sociological roots. Hmm. That the uh, the problem itself is rooted in a context. Uh, what I call the law enforcement game. It's just like um, just like you know, if you, you uh, if you look at if you look at the game of football, for example, you you see that there are so many injuries lifelong injuries in football, concussions, uh, all kinds of problems. And I read recently there was a uh, study, that, a national study over a, a couple year period that showed that only 1.5% of football injuries are the result of penalties. And we've invested so much of our time with uh, new cameras, with new penalties, new techniques, and it hasn't changed the injuries at all. It's just we we feel good about it, but it's not, it's the game. Super yeah. these supersized people are hitting each other at full speed. That that's the problem. <laughs> There's no <laughs> no amount of penalties, and it's the same thing in policing. As long as you keep the game, I'm going out into the community. I'm locking you up. You drive a car at me, even close to me, I'm going to shoot you. That game is is what the problem is. Is I don't think it's bad apple cops. I think it's the game of law enforcement. Wow, that's that's interesting. Um, you you mentioned about metrics. What are some of the metrics that you, I imagine, showing your book, but have have um, shown uh, to kind of back up what you're talking about? Well, we have uh, you know first of all, you know we've we've developed some uh, metrics of neighborhood we call neighborhood dynamics, and uh, the neighbor neighborhood dynamics it's this interplay between people who live in an area with the police and with each other. And these things, these dynamics form what I call the neighborhood atmosphere. Now, the, the neighborhood atmosphere is really the thing that um, it's, it, it varies. Uh, the container, it's like a container, an ambition like a container that has some degree of interdependence in it and some degree of conflict between neighbors and police and some degree of dependence on the police. When that combination is high levels of interdependence, even in poor areas, even in areas that are predicted to be high crime, when those places have high levels of interdependence, low levels of conflict and low levels of dependence, these places are the safest. I mean, it's it, not only is it safe from crime, uh, community crime, but the, the community is more willing to intervene on situations like domestic violence or if somebody threatens suicide or if somebody's returning to a community for um, from prison, those are sort of the social aspects of it. But also, when those things are high, high levels of interdependence in this container, in this community atmosphere, those it's also uh, affects individuals in terms of back pain, uh, migraine headaches, um, feelings of depression, and and so the the context uh, that the that the police are are definitely involved in creating, co-creating, uh, has uh, impacts on how people relate to each other to help and make a place safe. Also, it has 
uh, an impact on how they feel about themselves. Wow. Wow. I, I think that speaks to what you said a minute ago about, um, you know, psychological issues having sociological roots, right? That these, these things manifest that what happens to us as a society and as cultures can manifest themselves in, in physical ways, you know, whether it be symptomology uh, or on the opposite side, you know, in, in feeling good, right? If, if things are good in your community, you tend to physically probably feel better as well, I imagine. Right. And it's, it's also, it's connected to some of the things that we may talk about later. It's like we, um, a human mind creates these boundaries that we, we feel like we're disconnected. We're like an individual self. But, you know, think about it is, you know, if the mind and the body is connected and you and I are looking at each other, I'm in your mind and I'm in, and I'm, you're in my mind. And that's one, one way that we're connected. Like, I, I'm not separate from you in that sense. I'm part of your consciousness at the moment. But, but also what I'm saying is, in addition to that, and in addition to the fact that we exchange uh, atoms and molecules and those types of things, but we're, we're connected uh, in our social atmosphere also, the neighborhood atmosphere. When there's a place, if you're living in a place and you feel threatened by the police or you don't trust the police, or you don't want to know your neighbors, you hate your neighbors, you're not, you're going to be withdrawn. And that, that's going to take a toll on your body because it's, it's, your mind is connected to your body. If I come on this program and I say, oh, you guys are a bunch of jerks. And, or what are you talking about me? I'm a jerk. You know, I'm, it, you know, it, it just, it begins to make me feel all of a sudden I go into fight flight. And so I'm, you know, yeah. Wow. (laughs) I'm just, I'm trying to get my head around. Like there's so many directions this conversation can go. One of the things um, Brandon and I've kind of been talking about like Mm -hmm. offline um, that I've been reading a lot of Richard Rohr's stuff lately. And um, he's been really influenced by Ken Wilber's work. And, um, and also there's uh, a, a a Catholic um, physicist named Ilya Delio um, who has been doing a lot of, you know, like looking at, at where faith and religion intersect with physics and quantum mechanics and things like that. And that whole notion of our interconnectedness, you know, sort of we're, we're starting to talk a little bit about um, this phenomenon called quantum entanglement, right? Where particles that are related to one another, but are separated physically by great distance still react to one another. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you're describing um, kind of speaks into that, right? Because we do exist in one another's mind. Our mind is connected to our body. Um, you know, on, on a on a kind of an esoteric surface level, it's a way of explaining that phenomenon. Like, you know, you're thinking about somebody, and all of a sudden they text you out of the blue, right? It, <laughs> but but there, it, it is. It's a coincidence. Like I believe in coincidences. I'm not one Wait, of those people. Wait, are, are you talking about the same thing? Like when I say. I need suntan lotion and then I'm on Facebook and I get an ad that shows for suntan lotion. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook is, uh, is Same thing, exploiting right? quantum entanglement to show us uh, the ad content that it thinks we want. That's it. Yeah. No, but you're right. You're so right about that. Like the, how we're all connected. That was the big thing. Didn't mean to inter- interrupt you, Joe. No, 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 we'll no. Go no back that's to fine. that. That's but that was the big thing when, back in the day of, of um, my previous podcast, when uh, Jim and I were first talking the idea, I think Jim said this, Jim, I think you said the idea of the other, that we're all connected. 
and that what I do affects you, whether you realize it or not, whether I realize it or not. <clears throat> and I think, you, uh, Jim, you were talking about Indra's net, if I remember yeah. correctly. And uh, <clears throat> and I, I cannot even explain what that is. But just the idea, and it was fascinating to me that it, you know, because in our, I think, Western civilization, we live so isolated thinking that what I do doesn't affect other people. It might affect my my, you know, close-knit family, but it doesn't affect the whole, and it's it's so opposite. So, right. Sorry, sorry, Jed, mm-hmm. I mean to interrupt you. No, 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 that's, yeah. We, we are connected, we're connected in uh, in ways that we don't realize. It, for one, one thing, we can't see it. Like, we can't see particles. We can't see atoms. But we, but we also, um, you know, I had this, um, I've been reading this article. Um, I, I can't even see the name of the person, but it says, so it goes like this. In fact, right now, if you take a deep breath and then exhale, by the time a year goes by, approximately one atom from that breath will end up in every other person on Earth's lungs at any moment in time. In other words, you probably have approximately one atom from Caesar's last breath in your lungs right now. Oh, wow. That's so good. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. 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 You know, that, that all makes me, you know, kind of to, to connect to this, to that conversation uh, about police reform, though. Um, I wonder if, because it's so complicated and so nuanced, like all, all the stuff we're talking about is not just super simple, you know, here here's a list of solutions, right? It, it's it's not um, it's not a, um, a mechanical kind of task to fix this. It's an adaptive task. We've got to figure out what's going on and we've got to create new solutions. And I wonder if that's why the idea itself just faces so much resistance because for a lot of people, it's just too damn hard to think about. I don't know. Well, I think about it this way. I mean, I told I mentioned football. Can you imagine if someone at WVU decided I'm going to change the game of football? I don't want people to hit so hard. What would, what would happen? Like there would be no fans. The coach would be fired. I yeah, mean, that, that would not go over too well. Football is it sacred. Would be, it would be a meltdown. And I think the same thing is that people think about in policing is that when you think about policing as law enforcement, are they protect and they serve and those types of things that you're not you, you're not thinking that there may be a better way. There may be a better way of doing it that, that makes things safer for the police and for for the community as a whole. You don't want to give up the institution that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What I imagine the argument always is, and you'll see it, <clears throat> you even saw it with George Floyd, if they would just obey the law, they wouldn't be in those situations, right? And that seems to be anti to what, obviously to what you're saying, but to make the whole thing better, it's not about obeying the law. That's, that, that is not even part of the equation is what you're saying. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, there's, um, you know, in philosophy, they talk talk sometimes about uh, deontological ethics and uh, uh, um, what, what's the other one? The, where the outcomes more consequentialist ethics. That the police are more um, deontological in a sense. It's disconnected from the outcome. It's the same way with uh, like the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not steal," or "Thou shalt shall not kill." But if you you, you, so if you, if you say, well, I have to steal because I have this child that will die unless I steal, then then what makes it right? Is it is it is it is it wrong just because you stole, or is it wrong? You know how do, well, how do you decide right or wrong? 
And I think that the police are um, mostly function from a deontological ethic, that they, they want to enforce the law, obey the policies and procedures, regardless of the consequences. And I'm saying that it's gotta be a shift in logic, a shift in the ethics also, that they you do these things, they're the right thing to do if they create a safe place, if, they, if people are, are bonded, if they develop trust. And right now, the outcomes don't matter at all to the police. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon giving platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and I'd like to recognize our master gardener level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite streaming app. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now back to the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a parallel between what you just said and and what it's like for folks who go through some kind of spiritual deconstruction um, that, that you do like, and, and maybe as a society, we're coming to this point of maybe a collective deconstruction reconstruction moment where we're starting to realize that all of this stuff that we've always believed, all of this ontological stuff, right? How we, how we define our being, how, what, you know, how we define what we believe um, is starting to come into question because we're starting to figure out there's a better way. Like we go through that, those of us who have been through spiritual deconstruction, you know, whether it's like Brandon's is a lot more extreme than mine because my deconstruction was Methodist. So, <laughs> you know, there was, there wasn't that deep, like, you know, control stuff that, that, um, that the more evangelical expressions had, but <laughs> you do kind of get to this point where you say, wait a minute, this, like this whole rule-based paradigm you know, thou shalt not this and that, um, you know, so because God said it, that's the reason, you know, that you, that you obey that commandment. You start to realize it's so much, life is so much more nuanced than that. And actually, if I take a different approach and say, I, I don't behave this way because I'm afraid of being punished. I behave this way because of, of the reward I get for being a good person, you know, just you know, it, it shifts your ethic. It shifts the source of your ethics, I guess. Right. Or, or the outcome is, you know, the, the it makes the community stronger. And, and therefore, you know, there's, uh, it makes us stronger. In other words, your community is not the other. It's community is, is me. And, and I think Brandon and I had this discussion before about um, the self, self and the other is uh, that sometimes People argue, well, that person is self-centered or that's self-interested or narcissistic or something like that. Like they, the, for, but for me, that, that's not the problem. I think everybody is uh, somewhat self-centered, but the, the problem is the way you see the self. If it's a tiny self, like for me from the skin and in, that's, that's a problem, not being self-centered. If I see us all together as part of the same self and I'm self-centered, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've got this hyper individualistic culture now 
that that really does focus on the tiny self. You know, I, I like that what you said from the skin and in, <laughs> you know, um, that, that we believe ourselves to be the center of our own universes and other people are just bit actors in this whole play that's about me. And you know. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, you know, to just to kind of to turn the, the conversation back a little bit, because I think this is all relevant to this, the overall topic of police reform. Um, how, how do we get there? How, how, you know, what measures can we implement that would begin to change some of this? Well, just 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 think about what it would what it what it would take to do what I'm saying is what it would take is that police uh, first of all there may be uh, more or different types of uh, skills involved in policing, but the police and maybe even and I would argue the entire criminal justice system should be evaluated based on the extent to which it makes places safe and strong. Mm. Strong meaning that they people are connected to each other. And um, they feel connected to each other. They definitely are connected to each other, whether they know it or not. But uh, they feel, feel connected to each other. If all of the resources in policing and the criminal justice system were, eva- the evaluation of it was, is that place better off because of what we did? Um, the metrics that I talked about, the, in, the, the battle, the interdependence and that kind of thing could be used as a, as a measure, but also levels of crime crime clearance rates, all those types of things could be uh, part of the, um, the evaluation. So the, the, in other words, what I'm trying to say is it, it's, it's possible because I can see it. I can describe what it looks like. But how do, how do you go from here to there? It's difficult because police chiefs work for mayors. Mayors get elected. And it's, it's very difficult. I, f- I feel like if you have a progressive chief who says, I'm going to do this, they could easily do it. But um, again, I, I think most reform efforts today are it either come in, a, in several different uh, forms. One is defund, get rid of hell, hell with the police. The, the other one is uh, let's have new strategies, put cameras on. Let's try to, let's try to catch the dirty ones. Yeah, hold them accountable. And, and the other ones is the ones that I'm talking about is no, completely shift to what you're doing. The game of policing, change it to the game, game of community building. Use all the resources, but tra- re- have the officers reimagine what it's like and then do that. And I think that reimagining and implementing strategies in a new game is what needs to happen. How it happens, it's, it's still, um, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Are, are there are there are there places that are doing it well, in your opinion, no, or, or at least moving in the right direction? Or no, the closest are people that are doing community policing. In other words, it's a law enforcement agency that um, has a community policing unit, and so they have people that are officers that do juggling and unicycle and going to um, you know they they're they're community relations specialists. And what I'm saying is that community relations is just to keep people appeased. So behind the scenes, the real cops can continue doing what they're doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get what you're saying. You know, and then I say, no, everybody, the whole thing should be about community building. And nobody's doing that that I know of. Hmm. So you, you mentioned earlier something about um, civilian um, oversight, right? And the city where you live, Morgantown, West Virginia, just recently... Um, enacted um, 
a, a citizens review board or something along those lines. So how do, how does that help? Like, how is that a step in the right direction? Uh, it is, I think it is a step in the right direction. In fact, I was in, involved a little bit on uh, with that with the NAACP. Uh, I I think uh, that it opens the door. It, it provides for some transparency. So that what's going on in policing is not hidden behind some some uh, you know dark door. That people can see what's going on and can begin to talk about it. But. Um, I think that, a, and, I, and I think it's necessary because we know from what happened to George Floyd that there are bad actors in policing. But if you look at, uh, if you look at the data and the racial disparities in car stops, tickets, citations, searches, all of it, it's, it's way deeper than these one or two bad actors that uh, it's not gonna fix it. And so if you have a, if you have a uh, civilian review board, it's not a big step to a review civilian uh, reform board mm. that's that's watching over the steps to take to change policing from this law enforcement approach to a more peaceful uh, and more effective community building approach. Yeah, it just kind of strikes me that what what starts out like I think it starts out ostensibly as. Um, accountability, right? That's, but I think I can envision a way that through that process, people can begin to imagine better practices, right? Um, And I think the trans, but the transparency and the accountability are like a first step towards that. But I do like to me in my mind, anyhow, it's a pretty short step from there to, oh, wait, we could actually do this whole thing differently, right? We we could yeah. change the whole focus. Of it. I love yeah. that. that. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. That's how I think. It, that's how I think about it. I wouldn't say early on when they were talking about civilian review boards, based on my under, based on my experience, I felt like that it's it's not uh, it's not the right direction because I felt like very rarely do uh, are there incidents that a civilian review board is going to catch them and it's going to fix it. But the, but the bigger view, what I take now, and mostly because of my discussions with the NAACP and others, is that look, this is a step in the right direction. Let's let's be, become more transparent. Let's talk to each other, build relationships, think about other ways of doing policing, and it'll become more of an evolutionary process mm. toward reform. Wow. My my brain is just. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I I. I guess when I came to the conversation, I didn't realize there was another way, you know, like you've heard of the, the, like you were saying the examples of, um, like of the defund, but they were saying, you know, have a social worker with the police or, you know, um, have police not do such and such, uh, activities and have them focus somewhere else. But you're saying that still doesn't solve the problem. The problem is based on how they're going about it. And, um, I mean, I can, I can relate the job I work, we have a department that, uh, air quotes, try to keep what I'm doing accountable. And, but they do it by that. We're going to catch every little thing and every little thing we catch is going to go against, um, your percentage of, of job performance. And every time we get, uh, what we, I would call flag or whatever, it lowers job performance because the morale goes down rather than a symbiotic work side by side. Hey, you, you might want to correct this. It's a, 
boom, you got dinged kind of thing. And so as you were talking, I was like, oh man, I can relate to that. And that, (laughs) I, yeah, Yeah. that would make so much more sense. Change the whole structure, not, you know, change some surface stuff. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, you can't fix it with the surface stuff. And a lot a lot of the, uh, you know, the, particularly the defund uh, argument is that there are better ways, you know, take resources from the police and send it to like social workers and therapists who are helping families and helping people with drug abuse disorder. Uh, I could say something more about that in a minute. But, you know, all these, these things that pop up in a society that, um, but if you... You know, I've been around for a long time, and I, I've seen, I know the social workers, I know the therapists, I know they're trying to do a good job, but they're really doing the same thing the police are doing. They're dealing with the symptoms of a, a much deeper sociological problem, that the people are depressed and they come forward out of, a, out of an area and they, they need help. So let me, let me help. But, you know, it's like in the you know, prevention literature, they say, you know, it's like uh, putting an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff instead of putting, you know, sealing off the top of the cliff. People keep falling off, and 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 what they're suggesting is everybody that falls off, let's have one ambulance for therapists. Let's have one ambulance for uh, homelessness. Let's have one. It doesn't. It just doesn't work that way. They all have a common root, and there's nobody working on the root. Even the even the best trained uh, therapists are not dealing with the community underlying community problems. Hmm. The yeah, police- they're. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. But the but the police could. I reimagine the police could do it. Yeah. I reimagine police with all the resources in policing, working in communities, they could deal with the with the sociological problems that are giving rise to these high rates of other problems. Yeah, it, it's got me thinking about there. There's a parallel um, in in um, recovery work that that I'm only I'm not an expert on this at all, but I've been exposed. Um, to a lot of it, just as a pastor, I get exposed to a lot of this kind of stuff that's going on. And there's this move from um, interventional strategy to motivational strategy. And so rather than, you know, we always used to, to, to hear about like when, when, when someone was in addiction, you know, there was this confrontational, like, we're going to have an intervention. We're going to, you know, we're going to scare you straight or whatever, um, and now the, on the treatment side, they're moving towards what a, a technique called motivational questions. And it's really trying to get at the heart of not, you know, I need you to stop doing this because, you know, of the cost of continuing to do it, but it's really what makes you want to do this in the first place and how can we change that? It seems like there's a parallel yeah, to what you're talking about so. there in police reform. Yeah, it sounds that way. I mean, one's a, more of a prevention focus. Let me try to really make it. Rather than intervene once it pops up, yeah. And I, I think in so social problems, all of the things that are, we're dealing with in society. And I'm, let me come back to the um, substance abuse disorder. You know, in the state of West Virginia, there was a policy document that said that there's high rates of substance abuse disorder. Think about that. It's high rates of substance abuse disorder is the is the problem. Well, that means the problem is. It originates in the individual, that individuals have these high rates of these problems. Right. And therefore, once you begin to think that it's the individual, how do we fix these individuals? And I'm saying it's not the individual. It's the, there are places, certain places that have high rates. So it's not, substance abuse disorder is not the, 
is it's not the problem. The problem is broken relationships, you yeah. know, and, and, and a, you know, a broken society that's producing high rates of mental illness, yeah. crime, and all of these things are related. They don't come separately. And the defund the movement is really focused on how do I take, here's some money for a therapist, here's some money for this group, as if they pop up in different ways. They're all, it's like a Gordian yeah. knot, yeah. you know, they're all wrapped together. It's, it's all just different types of interventional strategies, right? If you interv- if you have an intervention, if there's an intervention, if you're, if you're working to try to build relationships and fix problems at the root. Yeah. Then that's more on the motivational side then. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's but, so but, good. But, but, to, but basically to that point though, the things that pop up as a, like if you go into a, if a police officer goes into a community and the problem is uh, say high school kids, uh, using hydrocodone or something like that, and they get addicted to hydrocodone. Well, presently, it's a law enforcement approach, or you can try to get that person an individual treatment. But if if the idea is the new model is how do I build relationships? Well, that that's one of the issues people are willing to work on together. So you get if you bring people together to work on that issue, even if even if you're not successful, you're, you are successful in bringing people together and working on it together. And so there's, there's always the two aspects, the intervention, how do I, how do I do it? How do I intervene on something that people are really concerned about? And how do I do it in a way that builds relationships? Hmm. Man. Brandon, it's just <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, I feel sorry for the listeners that, you know, that only get the audio version of this and don't get to see Brandon's face as his mind is being blown. Here. <laughs> I have destroyed my office, stops on the ground, <laughs> and my brain tries to process everything. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Jim, I wonder, have you had any, um, I know you're saying there's not a, any, uh, organ- or not organization, but uh, pl- police or place that's doing doing it right have you had have you had any conversations with police? Um, have you had any of those conversations like where you're able to to shift the needle closer to, you know, or or, or what are the pushbacks that you're hearing from police um, as far as this this uh, this change? I, for for me, um, most uh, people that I talk to that are uh, at the front front line see the value in it. Uh, but m- most people uh, higher up the chain who've been around for a long time have who have uh, who have become experts in the existing system. It's harder, you know. It, it's harder to uh, disconnect. You know, in sociology, we talk about like you know, I mentioned the game that the the game uh, pr- provides a, a logic, but the the uh, player internalizes the logic. And when that becomes so, it's, when it's so internalized that it's it's hard to break free. You think it's the natural way it should be. Religion is the same way. You know, people practice religion the, the same way. That there's a way that it that it um, it becomes sacred. In other words, the institution itself, the game itself, becomes sacred. You, you, there's and I use this example sometimes in my classes. You don't, you rarely get people coming to church and they're talking about, hey, do you think God really exists? <laughs> you know, some yeah, things yeah, are just yeah. taken for granted as true. And, you know, and I think in policing, you don't get people saying, hey, do you think we should do law enforcement? No, I mean, it's sacred. That's what they do. 
And I think that we have to challenge the sacred if we're going to change it. Go after the sacred. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, okay, so you mentioned this in, in the intro, and I'm really intrigued. So, And I feel like it goes right after this, this question. So you are someone in law enforcement that saw it the way it is. These are criminals, and we have to enforce the law. And then at some point, um, it switched for you. What what were was there one thing or what was it that that led to that mindset mindset shift for you? Well, I, I mean, I started seeing it differently because uh, I was working in a drug unit. I worked in a drug unit for about seven years. Um, it was called the Drug Organized Crime Advice Unit, and uh, during that time, we were doing wiretaps and drug raids and all those types of things. But I was a doctoral student at Temple, so I was. Uh, sneaking away to classes. And uh, I was, you know, half-time to full-time student. It wasn't like I was just taking a night class here and there. I was on, oh, I was on track to finish in six years. And, um, and during those classes, it was social psychology I was studying. And during those classes, the, sometimes the uh, professors set up scenarios uh, without warning us that uh, affected the way we behaved. And I became, you know, and, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I sat in class and when they decided, like, we're not going to say anything. Oh, <laughs> you know, one of the, those kind of things. <laughs> after a while, yeah, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to strangle somebody. And then I realized, like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't wake up thinking that I'm going to strangle somebody. I, I mm. consider myself a good guy. But then I realized that I have a side of me that can be triggered by the context. Oh, and man. when I started processing that, then I became more interested in what is the context that's creating, giving rise to this kind of thing. And all of the policing stuff that I do now is, uh, and talk about and write about, is about how do you focus police on, instead of catching criminals, about changing context. Mm. Wow. Well, and we, and I, I feel like we see that, you know, maybe shifting the, the topic a little bit, conversation a little bit to like deconstruction. And the religious side, I see the struggle is like, like, you know, you kind of mentioned it. How do you have those doubts, those changes, but you're still so loyal to the sacred cow, you know, and, and we always, I always, in my background, we always talked about, let's kill the sacred cow, <laughs> you know, the, well, we don't do it this way because we've always done it this way. And it's like, well, let's kill that and let's, let's move the ball forward, so to speak. Um, do you see that? You know, so in your in your story, you were able to do that. How were you able to shift your thinking from, oh my gosh, there's this other way, you know, ver versus the well, we've always done it this way. Was that it? Was that a big struggle for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, I I had to leave policing. I, I only stayed thirteen years, and um, and so you know, it it was. It, it's almost impossible to do it from within. Although I've been back and I've worked on projects with the police and I've had grant funded projects working with police and stuff like that. But I actually had to leave um, because, my, because my success in the organization and, and it's the same thing in religion, as you say, that um, it, it's just, it's too hard because everything is set up and you, you become uh, the odd person. It's like, um, <laughs> This is going to sound arrogant. I, I probably don't want to. I want to warn the listeners. I'm not really an arrogant person, but it's like um, 
in Plato's cave. Do you remember the story of Plato's cave where these people were born in captivity and all they can, so they're, they're in this cave and they're lined up and every, they can't move their neck or anything. And everything they see is a shadows on the wall. And they begin to think that the shadows are reality. And uh, there's a fire behind them and lots of activities. The captors are behind them, but all they see is the shadows. And then one day, one of the, um, one of the prisoners is released and taken outside and they can see the sun and the stars and the source of the shadows and, and uh, eventually comes back and tells the others that, uh, well, he comes back and he gets, and then suddenly the things that counted in the world of the shadows didn't count anymore. And the, the slaves begin to say, if anybody takes me out of here, I'll, I'll kill them because they, you know, damaged this, this, this person. So in other words, the, the enlightened person who comes back is seen as mentally defective. There's something wrong with them. And I, I think that wow. that's, that's, that's what can happen is if when you see another way, it's really hard to go back to the, the same cave, <laughs> the same captives. Yeah. yeah. And tell them about it. Wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, all, as you were saying that, I'm thinking that's why Jesus was crucified, right? Jesus saw a better way of being, tried oh, to get people to live a better way, managed to get a handful of folks to go along, but the power systems, the control systems were not about to have that disrupted um, with new information. Right. Yeah, Jesus was the enlightened slave that comes back. Yeah, yeah. This, this was written, you know, Plato wrote this uh, uh, 2,500 years before uh, Christ. Yeah. So, <laughs> the story goes way back. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's just like, there's so many parallels in this whole conversation with the whole deconstruction story too. And that's, you know, I think that's what a lot of folks, and Brandon could probably speak to this better than me because of your personal experience, but you, you know, you, you progress along a line of spiritual development. You know, we've, we've talked before on this podcast about James Fowler's research, you know, into, into the stages of spiritual development. And, um, we were, we were talking a little bit about this offline before we started the interview. Like <laughs> you get to this certain phase where you get really comfortable, you know, like things feel good. You know, you, you get comfortable, you're part of a community. There are authority figures to do all of your thinking for you. Um, and, and it's really easy to get stuck there. It's the shadows in the cave. Right. And, but eventually you get to that point where like, you know, and we talked about this just a few minutes ago, you start to question those things. You realize that there's more to the world than, you know, just this scenario that you've kind of been handed and, and then you're the enemy in that tribe, right? Um, mm. You know, and that I, I always think about, you know, Fowler's research is very linear. Like you go from stage one to stage two to stage three. Um, and even though like in between, there might be a little bit of sliding back and forth. He, he sees this very linear kind of progression. I've always been interested in what that would look like to map Fowler's stages of spiritual development onto like a spiral dynamics model you know, that starts out like at the lower levels with um, survival instincts and then kind of grows into tribalism and, you know, and then, you know, for, forming of broader society, you know, and this, there's this movement towards enlightenment, but it doesn't all happen in a straight line. Like there's some forward and back and there's, you, you get more, 
you know, enlightened in one area, but you're still more primitive in other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that happens as, as societies too, not just as individuals. Um, and that, that feels like a little bit of what we're talking about with the barriers that you're running up against trying to get some police reform done is there's some movement forward. There's some enlightenment happening, but there's still resistance in other areas. Yeah, there's 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 things that people uh, people are not willing, or even they don't they don't even think to go. There are plenty of people like we're having this discussion now, and we're talking about the, the reimagining policing as something other than law enforcement. In most um, in most uh, situations today, in most police agencies, nobody's thinking that cops are law enforcement. Yeah, that's what they are. These these are synonyms, and and. Uh, and so they don't. In other words, it's one thing to refuse to address it, but it's another thing to even recognize that it's even a possibility. Mm, yeah, I think that's my struggle. Um, and man, that that Plato's cave is—that's my story to a T. Um, being raised in the evangelical system and seeing the shadows and saying, well, this is reality. And then you start seeing other realities and um, it can be very lonely and depressing when you're first going through it. Um, But then going back to that world and saying, guys, there's, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? The Bible is not literal that, you know, like, have you thought about that? It's been, you know, all these that maybe hell doesn't exist. And, you know, that, that the creation story was a poem and it's not, like for tea, like fact, and you know, mm-hmm. like all these, like I consider them surface level, but I guess that might not be a surface level. But like all these tenets of faith that we're taught in in the cave, that these are hundred percent fact. Don't question them, and if you do, you're backsliding. And if you backslide, you're going to go to hell. Like this whole fear and control thing. And then you're going back to the cave. You're like, guys, I think we had it wrong. <laughs> like, come on now. And just just the pushback of, you know, like, I, I haven't heard, but I can tell you the things that have been told about me because I was in that system. And when someone left, I know what was said, you know, like, well, Brandon, you know, Brandon's lost his faith or Brandon's gone progressive and Brandon's a liberal and, you know, whatever, like things that I gladly wear now, <laughs> but it just my, yeah, I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. And, and Jim, I do have to say, I, I respected you already, um, just from knowing you and, our, and, and, uh, um, the great stuff you're doing, but I didn't, I did not realize you went through in essence, a career deconstruction that you're like, okay, my mind, my mindset has changed. I can no longer be in this system and abide by this system. Um, you know, I, I have to, I have to go somewhere else. That, that is just phenomenal to me. And that, and that mm-hmm. you stuck with it and you did it. That's because many people like Jim was saying, or I mean, Joe was saying about the Fowler's model is they'll stay in stage three because there's too much uncertainty in stage four. Um, and the fact yeah. that you did that, is just phenomenal to me. So yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a big risk. It's a big jump. Yeah. Particularly when you have, uh, you know, a family where, yeah. you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, yeah, a career and those types of things. It's hard, it's hard to do that. But I guess at some level for your mental health is, um, it's all part of it. Yeah. You have to, you have to do what's somewhat authentic. Yeah. 
You can't you can't stay in the you can't stay in the cave. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah, once you wake up, staying in the cave is more detriment to mental health than leaving and and being shunned yeah. by the yeah, by the people in the sh- in the cave. Yeah. Man. All right, my mind's officially blown. <laughs> <laughs> this is all really good. We're we're kind of starting to come close to the end of uh of the time here, but um I did want to give you a chance, Jim, you know, you mentioned your, your books a little bit ago, but, uh, definitely give you a chance to plug that. And, um, you know, if there's anything else that, um, that we haven't covered, uh, that you, that you want the folks to know about, um, this, this is your chance. Uh, well, uh, the, you know, the book is, is out, it's a, uh, it's an edited edition. So I have, uh, two colleagues that, um, were co-editors with me. One is, uh, Tim Parsons. He was, a um, uh, 30-year London police officer. And um, I mean, the other one was Frank Crispino, was a uh, colonel in the French gendarmerie. He was a uh, career um, military official. Uh, he was a forensic scientist now. And so we, um, we basically wrote about police reform from our different perspectives. So the issues in uh, in in Europe are different than the issues in, in America, mm-hmm. although they there's some overlap. So most of uh, my chapters uh, have about seven chapters, I believe, that are really on the American uh, the American issue, which in, you know it includes uh, George Floyd and and what happened in Ferguson and those types of mm-hmm. things, and it and it includes uh, a lot of more detail on what I talked about today in terms of how the, uh, the mindset is shaped by the field and uh, how it uh, appears natural uh, and therefore it's hard, to, um, it's hard to change. It's very hard to change. And the logic doesn't originate in people. It originates in uh, the, the social context. And so a lot of that stuff is, uh, is in the book. So uh, it's better, probably better, if anybody, any of the listeners want to know more about the book to contact me because it's an expensive book, like a lot of books are these days. But I could help them um, get access to, if they're interested in knowing more, get access to more information on the book. And how does one contact you? Um, Jim.Nolan at mail wvu.edu is probably the best awesome. if you if you do sociology and anthropology at wvu also um, my picture will be there and along with contact information phone numbers and stuff awesome very good very good it's it's always exciting to me um as as a native west virginian and appalachian um to see this kind of really important work you know coming out of our state's flagship university um you know i think WVU is off a lot of people's radar uh, outside of the athletic world. Um, but I think, you know, I think um, our best and brightest people aren't necessarily the ones that are filling the stands up every Saturday. Um, nothing. I love football. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sports fan, but there's such good work coming out of that university that people just aren't aware of. Well, the other, the other thing too, if we, if we have another chance to talk more about some of the, um, more spiritual issues, more uh, those those types of things. I, I have a lot uh, a lot of thoughts on those things too. Oh yeah, yeah. We we Brandon and I were talking like, do we do two episodes at once? Uh, or yeah, yeah. We, um, but there's yeah, there's just so much great stuff to cover here. 
All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for uh, taking time to speak with us, and uh, we look forward to talking more. Yeah, I, th- I think we're going to have to have a follow-up episode with Jim on on the, <laughs> the spirituality side of all of this, too. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Anytime. I really appreciate it, and thanks for the invitation. All right. Officially. I said it in the intro. Officially. Yep. We need a sound effect. Just that. And we need emojis <laughs> of the brain. My mind is, is blown. Uh, I'm so glad we went into the conversation about defund police. I didn't. I never liked that hashtag. Uh, I think whoever chose the word defund was the wrong word. And but again, that was even according to Jim. Like there's a, there's a way three, a number three, that yeah, is so yeah. much more than defund or re uh, re imagine. It's like it's no. The, the we got to get to the core of it. And man, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The whole defund thing. Like I get. I mean, you know, that comes out of the black community, and I respect where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I kind of had a similar reaction and, and I have to recognize like that my own position of privilege is part of how I react to things. And so, so I just try to, you know, keep that in mind. But to me, just as somebody who spent most of my career in marketing, I, I always felt like, that's man, what it was. I, I wish there was a better way to say that. I get where it comes from. I know. And I agree I know. with I the premise. Like, right. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, man, we, we picked cause, cause the, that was that one word was picked up on so strong and people missed the the, the messaging. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I, like you, I was like, marketing, no, you picked the wrong yeah, word. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I really did appreciate how Jim sort of reframed the whole conversation. I was great. You know, um, to, to see, kind of see it from a bigger perspective. So that was, that was great. And, um, and we wanted to talk about some spiritual things. Um, and as, as, as we said, um, we're going to have him back. Uh, and I don't know if this is on, on Mike, but he talked about there's a, such a spiritual side to the police reform that he wants to dive into. And I say, let's bring him back because we were trying to get the spiritual side, but it felt like if we go there, it's going to take away from this conversation of police yeah, yeah. reform. So I'm so excited for the part two as well. Yeah, yeah. So listeners, just uh, keep an eye out for for our follow-up uh, with Jim. It'll be coming out um, in, in just the next few weeks here. Um, as always, if you're interested in any of the content, that we are creating and curating for the Accidental Tomatoes community. You can find us online at accidentaltomatoes.com and across the social media spectrum, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us and contact us through our website. You can message us on social media, or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in the conversation. And once again, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.